morning. Scripture reading today is from John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, um, and that is page 1030 in your pew Bibles. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Well, good morning again. <clears throat> Once again, I'm very glad to be with you. And the first, the first thing I'd like to do is to thank you all for your well wishes and especially your prayers for me and my family. Um, I do apologize uh, for any and all unpredictability and uncertainty from day to day and from week to week due to our recent COVID experience. Um, we're on the mend though, and I am, we are looking forward to being fully mended and fully back very soon. Again, I apologize for the technical issues. Just as I was to come on, something happened and my system was rebooting. I'm not sure what was going on there, but hopefully we're good for the rest of our time together. So we'll close that chapter and put that away. I also want to thank all of our friends and partners in the gospel here at Bethesda and beyond for your stepping in and stepping up. If I start naming folks, I'll get carried away, but the Hooker family would be obvious to all, I think. So a special thanks to them these days. The main thing I'd like to note here, uh, though, is that no one in the Church of Jesus Christ is indispensable. That is, of course, except for Jesus Christ. He is the one head of his church, and therefore he is the one and only truly indispensable in and to and for his church. And we are so very thankful for his continued presence among us. I'm also very thankful both to you and also to our Lord Jesus to be part of a local congregation that recognizes that there is no indispensable other than Jesus himself, and that both in our theology and our practice and by our words and our deeds, we recognize and affirm that. This morning, we begin a new and, I hope, what will be for all of us an exciting and helpful series of sermons and worship themes based on your suggestions, what you'd like to hear from the Bible, truly biblical Christian answers to your and our serious questions. I mentioned recently in my weekly letter that I realized, as your suggestions began to come in, that I needed to do a bit of triage to determine or discern which questions and topics, which doubts and fears were most urgent from the perspective of both the questioner and eternity. Again, they're all very good and serious questions, and we'll deal with them all, but the problem is we have to start somewhere. All are worthy of our time and attention, but something will need to be first. Something will need to be second, and something will need to be last. I'd like to direct your attention to the tentative preaching schedule, which you have there as an insert to your bulletin. You'll see that we're beginning this morning with God's love. And this is an important and specific distinction 
God's love in Christ Jesus. I can't imagine a more important issue for us to get settled than the fact and the effect of God's love, and specifically, God's love in Christ Jesus on the world, on ourselves, on the various circumstances we find ourselves in, and especially on the whole of eternity. As you can see in your bulletin and insert, the controlling question for these first four sermons on God's love in Christ Jesus is this, how can I know that God loves me? How can I know that God loves me? This is the most basic and immediate way of putting it. But to get there, from both a biblical and a Christian point of view, we must first go big to the world, and then we'll be able to focus on the smaller, which is you, me, and us. For the big picture of God's love in Christ Jesus, there is no better place for us to begin than those most beloved and familiar words in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 16 and following. If you're not already there, please turn with me in John 3 and verse 16 in your Bibles. One of the ways we can know that these are words of truth and life, spoken by the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, is that they never get old. No matter how many times we hear them or see them on a sign on TV in a football game or a basketball game or something like that, they are life and truth, pointing us to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is God in Christ Jesus. And as we hear, let us believe. And as we believe, let us obey. And as we obey, let us consider this central truth of our message from God's word and the power and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You have it written there in your bulletins on the inside upper left corner. Knowing that God in Christ Jesus loves us. I want to emphasize the word knowing. There are many things we could say about what it means to know, but here what I, what I specifically mean, and as I understood the questioner to mean, how can I know from the inside out, without a doubt, that God loves me? So knowing that God in Christ Jesus loves us begins with seeing his love for us in the context of his infinite and active love for the whole of creation of which we are an integral part. Knowing that God in Christ Jesus loves us begins with seeing his love for us in the context of his infinite and active love for the whole of his creation, of which we are an integral part. I want to say one more thing about our series before we move on. One of the requests was that we spend more time and attention on the life, ministry, and person of Jesus, and that's good, and, and we will do that. You'll notice in our schedule, the vast majority of our source texts over the next while will come from the Gospels, which is, of course, where we learn much of what we think we know about Jesus, what he taught, how he lived, and why he came in the first place. But having said that, I'll reiterate what I've said before on this topic. The pattern of the New Testament church, that is, the apostles, after Jesus' ascension and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the pattern seems to be to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes again. 
That doesn't exclude the Gospels, of course. It just gives us a bit more focused target when we talk about preaching and teaching and proclamation. But before we go any further, I'd like to take just a moment to pray once again. And thank you very much, Cheyenne, for your reading and for your prayer. Lord, uh, as we continue on here, I pray that you would remove any distractions from our understanding, uh, from our believing, from our obeying your word. God, these are in some ways some of the most familiar verses in the Bible to us, but I pray that we will hear them afresh, that our familiarity won't get in the way of hearing you and hearing you in our time and our place right now, right here, and that you may speak to us in a new and fresh way how you love us, how much you love us, and what you would like for us to be a part of with you in your work because of your love, not only for us, but for the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. D.A. Carson is one of the leading evangelical New Testament scholars of our day. You may have heard of him. He calls what we'll be looking at these four weeks the difficult doctrine of the love of God. In his little book by that same title, Dr. Carson writes about the love of God in Christ. Listen to this. We live in a culture in which many other complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can survive at the forefront of our thinking if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. End of quote. So let's start from the top with God's love in Christ Jesus for the world. We'll make our way in the coming weeks down to God's love in Christ for you, for me, and yes, for us. But our central truth of the message gets where we need to go today. Knowing that God in Christ Jesus loves us begins with seeing his love for us in the context of his infinite and active love for the whole of creation, of which we are an integral part. We start here this morning because that's where this foundational text begins. And I'd like for us to think about this uh, under this uh, heading of major truth. So you can call this number one. If, you, if you're taking an outline, this can be point number one under the central truth. Jesus clearly sets God's love for individual believers in the larger context of his love in Christ Jesus for the whole world. Jesus clearly sets God's love for individual believers in the larger context of his love in Christ Jesus for the whole world. In John 3, Jesus is in the midst of yet another encounter with a Pharisee. But this time, it's different. It's Nicodemus, who is sincerely searching for God and who to eventually believe in Jesus. 
Earlier in the discussion, Jesus challenged Nicodemus and us with the shocking words, unless one is born again, he cannot or will not enter the kingdom of God. That's in verse 3. Now, what characterizes being born again and therefore being invited or even adopted into God's kingdom as a kingdom citizen? God gets to it in verse 15, doesn't he? Just before our passage that, that Cheyenne read a bit ago, 16 to 21, which we'll look at here this morning. But Jesus gets to answering that question in verse 15. Quote, that whoever believes in him, and by that he means from verse 14, the son of man who must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, the son of man who must be lifted up, may receive eternal life. But from whoever believes in him, in verse 15, Jesus connects to God's love for the world and the lengths to which God would go, and now has gone, to love, not only for the individual wh what, whoever, who believes, but also for the whole world. Let's clarify one thing. God in Christ Jesus didn't go to the cross to prove his love, like some Shakespearean love unto death spiral. He went to the cross because he is love. And his infinite love compelled him to save the world from sin, condemnation, wrath, and death. And he did that the only way that was available to him according to the law, and that is for him to offer himself up as the one and, and perfect and perfectly satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. We, we read this very thing in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent, him, sent his son to be the propitiation, the the the. the atonement, the atoning sacrifice, that word propitiation kind of trips us up a little bit. It's a great word. It has tremendous profound meaning, uh, but it is literally a reference to the sacrifice on the altar of God offered for the sins of the people. Um, and so he was. So let's look at the text there, beginning with verse 15 and on to verse 16. And um, I'd like for us to spend most of our time on verse 16, uh, because it's, it is familiar and treasured for a reason. It is perhaps one of, the, perhaps the most profound, and, and certainly among the most profound verses in scripture, and it is just filled with meaning, and if it's the only verse we had um, of God's scripture, it would go a long way to fulfilling all that we need to know uh, and feel about him. So verse six, verses 15 and 16, whoever believes in him, that is the son of man who must be lifted up, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I, I'd like to take this apart over the next couple of minutes, almost word for word. And the first word there that I'd like for us to make 
some reference to is, is, is the word for. This for in verse 16, for God so loved the world, connects verse 15, where clearly individual believers are in view, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, and connects verse 15, those whoever would believe, with God's love in Christ Jesus. The four also connects verse 15 with verse 16 in the sense that the world, not separate from it. So we are part of the world that God sent his son to save. So we read it again, verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God so loved the world. So, so, so we are not all that's intended in this statement, but we are included in this statement. Because in 15, individual believer, for God loved the world. And in fact, he loved the world in a very particular way. Yes, he, he, he loves with infinite volume, but I'm not so sure that's what the writer here by the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, is talking about, or at least that he has primarily in view. So let's go to that. God so loved. For God so loved. Um, so as I mentioned a bit ago, uh, we have, I think, traditionally and, and usually because it's the plain reading of the text in English, not in Greek, but in English, it's the plain reading in the text that the so here is so much, so great did God love the world that he gave his only son. Um, certainly that's included in the meaning here. Uh, if we go into the Greek, we can see that the, the word there, God so loved, is in the aorist active indicative uh, tense, which uh, the, or, the aorist is, is kind of between present and past. It can be translated as either present or past. It's perfect now because it's, it's kind of a, a sense that God is ongoing in his love for the world. That's kind of the sense. For God loved, it's translated past tense, but it's really kind of more than that. It's, it's like God loves and loves the world. Uh, if we could put it that way, that would be awkward, but that's kind of the way that it's intended here, here in the text. Um, but, but the more important thing here, I think, is that the sense here in, in the Greek text is not that God loved the world so much that he gave his son, but this is the way God loved the world. He gave his only son. So if we can think about it in that, in that, in that way, we're not so much talking about quantity of love. We're talking about quality of love. And in fact, the only way that God could love the world by saving the world is to send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross because it was the only way through the problem. For God so loved the world. For this is the way God loved the world is really the intended meaning, meaning in the text. Um, uh, and, and so does a lot of work here for us, right? And, and it is, in some sense, misleading because we use the word so as in very, um, meaning very, so much. Um, but that's not what's intended here. God loved the world in this way is the meaning of the text. And he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But we're not there yet. The next thing I want us to look at, for God so loved the world. Now, the word used here is cosmos, which is the same word from which we get the term cosmology, 
Uh, and it does mean the whole creation. The cosmos is the whole creation. All that there is that God has created, and God has created all that there is, all of that, stars, moon, sun, galaxies, as far as the universe exists and extends, all that is contained within it, the earth and all its inhabitants, human and other creatures, all of that is the cosmos. And so Jesus here says, for God so loved the world, right? And so uh, it, it is a big, very, very, very big concept. But we have traditionally, I think, reduced it down to people. Well, it's just a euphemism. It's a word that means people. I know it's not people. Cosmos is not people. And usually it's not. It doesn't mean that. In fact, it doesn't mean that ever. But here we'll, we'll, cut, we'll reduce it because it's, it's accessible then, right? Um, and uh, God so loved people who need saving, perhaps even the elect. So we need to, I think, tweak our understanding a little bit and, and, and understand that the writer here by the Holy Spirit means something much bigger than that. And that is by the world, he means the fallen order or the creation corrupted by sin and cursed by death. Yes, that, that, that sin came into the world by one man and by that one man death, speaking of Adam and the fall, and by one man, Jesus Christ, he would pay for the sins of, of the world and therefore begin the process of restoring what was lost. And that is the sense here that we get from John 3, 16. For God so loved the cosmos, all of his creation. And, and all of his creation has been tainted by sin, corrupted by uh, sin and are, 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 is under the, the curse of death. Um, these, this is heavy lifting for one verse, and we're just talking about a few words. So this is, this, is, this is profound. It's as profound as it gets. And my concern, and I know it's not only my concern, is that we, because of our familiarity with it, uh, we don't hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah, John 3, 16, for God's love of the world, yada, yada, right? This is probably the most profound verse in the whole scripture. It's because it demonstrates the profound, the infinite, the unwavering, the relentless love of God for his whole creation to the point where he gave his son. And that's the next thing, that he gave, right? Again, this is aorist active indicative, that he gave. So, it's, so yes, it's, it's, it is past tense. Um, but it's also present tense. He, he gave and he's giving is kind of the sense of it. God's love in Christ Jesus responds to the need of the world. So we're, we're talking here once again, cosmos. And what is the need? The need is salvation. The need is redemption. The need is restoration. The need is uh, to refresh and to renew what has been lost. Also, God's love in Christ Jesus moves him to give what is required or sufficient. And that one thing is Jesus Christ, his only son. And that's the next thing, right? His only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, only Jesus, the one and only son of man, verse 15, or verse 14, rather, 
so must the son be lift, son of man be lifted up, speaking of himself. So Jesus, son of man, God in the flesh, son of God, enfleshment of God, um, only he would do, his only son, only the intervention of God in Christ Jesus would meet the need. And his great love, his infinite love, his relentless love would not let him do anything other than provide what the need required. And then we get uh, just a, a little bit of, um, uh, um, uh, it's not a distraction, but a diversion here from the world to whoever. So obviously he's including human beings in this. He's not just talking about the cosmos out there on, on some far flung galaxy, but here he brings it right in to an individual, whoever, whoever believes. Now, this has often been, been understood as anyone and everyone who might choose to believe. And we, we know from, from uh, other passages of scripture that no one would believe if God didn't give them the faith to believe that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and draws us, draws us to God in Christ Jesus. We, we know that. So we never want to take credit for what only God can do. But it, but it does mean anyone could be a person who believes and so needs to hear this message this message of life, this message of eternal purpose. Whoever believes, anyone and everyone, uh, anyone and everyone whom God moves to saving faith. And this, so this does refer to the elect, um, but the message goes out to many others, right? And from among them come those who would believe. And then finally, believe what? Believe in whom? Believe in him, the one whom God has sent because of his great love to save and that they might not perish, not die physically, not die spiritually, not die eternally, that they'd not be lost to eternity, that they not be condemned, that they not, might not be damned, but have eternal life, that they might have or receive the opposite of eternal con condemnation and death, that they might have or receive Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and in fact, there's a sense in which that the, the writer here might be talking about Jesus himself, right? Uh, that eternal life is not only in Christ, but eternal life is Christ. Turn with me very quickly to 1 John chapter 1. I, I probably won't wait for all of you to get there, but, uh, but this, is, this is very, very important. Uh, and it gives us some insight into who this Jesus was and who this Jesus is um, straight from the most familiar verse in all the Bible. Same writer, John the Apostle, later in his life and ministry, probably close to, you know, within a few years of his death, he, he was the last apostle to die. We, we know that from the text of scripture and history. And uh, he lived probably as late as 95 AD. So if Jesus died in 33 AD-ish, uh, then, then we're talking 60 or more years uh, after Christ died. And he writes these words, listen to this, that which was from the beginning. So, so, so he's, he's making reference back to the gospel, the way the Holy Spirit moved him to write the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, well, he, he's picking up that theme, that which was from the beginning. And so surely he's talking about Jesus here which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our, with our hands, concerning the word of life. Again, another reference to Jesus. The word of life. The life, another reference to Jesus, was made manifest, and we have seen it. This could say, with, with full integrity, this could say, and we have seen him, and testify to him, and proclaim to you, check it out, the eternal life. And that, without any question, the eternal life is a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not listen. It's not making simple reference to, to a possession that we can buy or a possession that we can attain or, or even a, a possession that can come to us by the grace gift of God. Here he, he's talking about the person of Jesus Christ by whom we must be saved. This is profound. And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and it was made manifest to us. That which or that whom we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll return back at the end of our service here this morning to 1 John chapter 1. We'll pick up this reading in verse 5 for our benediction, but I just want us to get that, that the eternal life here is not just something that we can possess, but it's also the person of Jesus Christ that is being highlighted here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we see, first of all, that Jesus clearly sets God's love for individual believers, you and me, in the larger context of his love in Christ Jesus for the whole world. So don't get concerned. That's the biggest, longest point that, that we've got here, and we'll move pretty quickly from here on out, okay? But here's the second one. God's responsive love in Christ Jesus. So his responsive love. We had a need. He intervened in the need. The world, the cosmos, had a need. He's intervening in the need. God's responsive love in Christ Jesus rescues the world from eternal condemnation and begins to do the opposite to recover, to restore what has been lost through the curse of death. Now, I, I don't think it's too bold to observe that we might tend, unintentionally for sure, and even unconsciously, to reduce these treasured words of Jesus to the level of the individual, or perhaps the level of a people group, namely me, maybe you, perhaps even you know us, what I mean is we might naturally and simultaneously retranslate and reduce Jesus's words to something like, and again, unintentionally, unconsciously, this is just how we hear it. For God so loved us that he gave us his only son, that whoever among us believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into our world to condemn us, but in order that we might be saved through him. And we could be forgiven for that. This is the way we think in 21st century North America. And this is the way we've been taught, right? That the world here basically means human beings. And human beings basically reduces down practically to you and to me and to us. So it's talking about us. Well, let me read the text. From verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For, there's another one of those pesky fours connecting it with what came before. For, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Dr. Carl R. R. Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, and he's also a respected church historian. In his excellent new book, excellent new book, published in 2020, but I just got it uh, a few months ago, entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Catch that now. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, subtitled Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. He writes, quote, we all live in a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. Indeed, we human beings are called to transcend ourselves, to make our lives into works of art, to take the place of God as self-creators and the inventors, not the discoverers of meaning. He goes on, the highly technological world in which we now live, a world in which virtual reality is reality, makes it so easy to think and live this way. Self-creation is a routine, routine part of our modern social imaginary. And that is simply another way of saying that this is also a significant component of how we imagine our personal identities, our selves. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he uttered these words that we should reduce world to you or me or even us. While we can hardly see beyond our own noses at any point, God in Christ Jesus always has a bigger picture in view. And in the case of John 3.16 and following, he has the redemption of the cosmos, the whole of creation, clearly and eternally in view when God sent his son to be the savior of the world. Another reason that we might not be, that we might be forgiven rather, that we might be forgiven for mishandling or mishearing that John 3.16 and following is primarily or effectively about us, is that verse 18 through verse 21 are where Jesus moves from the world, the cosmos, to human beings. In so doing, I believe he's highlighting what we already know. Human beings occupy a special place in God's design of creation as the bearers of his image and likeness and as his representatives on the earth. So did Jesus come to save, redeem, restore, and rescue the world from the corruption of sin and the curse of death? Yes. Yes, he did. And did Jesus come to save human beings from condemnation and eternal death due to our treachery, our rebellion? and our disdain for the one true and living God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth? Yes, yes, he did that too. 
And not only did he do that, but yes, he did that because of his love, his great love. So God's responsive love in Christ Jesus rescues the, the world from eternal condemnation and begins to recover or to restore what has been lost through the curse of death. And that brings us quickly to our third and or of uh, four main points of truth for this morning. Here it is. Number three, Jesus did not come to save us human beings, to rescue us from the condemnation that already rests upon us. I think I put a nod in there and I should have. So let me say it again. Number three, Jesus did come to save us, human beings, to rescue us from the condemnation that already rests upon us. So I think I got it right that time. Here's the one thing we need to take from this truth this morning. Did you ever wonder why Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you? It's John 8 and verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Now, usually we think of Jesus being gracious, merciful, compassionate, forgiving, and not at all judgy at this point, and that's true. But that's not the only point to take from this. In fact, it might even not, not even be the primary thing that we should take from this. He certainly was being those things and not being that other thing, that judgy thing in that moment, and so should we, but I'm, I'm increasingly convinced it was something more, even bigger than that, something that we can see here in John 3 and verse 18, if we're open to it, and if the Spirit gives us his grace. Look at verse 18. Whoever, okay, this is the second whoever, so we got in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. So, so we've got that one individual reference, right, in the midst of a bunch of references to the world, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in verse 18, we get our second whoever, and our third whoever as well. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, watch this now, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's my insight, given I certainly hope and pray by the Holy Spirit for our good. Jesus didn't have to condemn the woman caught in adultery by equally sinful men because she was condemned already. Condem condemnation already rested upon her for her sin and us too such that even Jesus had no reason, though he alone had the right to condemn her for her sin. She was condemned already, and us too, and that's why he came. And that's why we need what he came to offer, namely himself, and forgiveness of our sins through his sacrifice, and justification before God through his resurrection. The application to our lives and ministries might be that because we don't have to condemn people, because condemnation already rests upon them, apart from Jesus' intervention into their lives and eternities and ours too, maybe that could free us up just enough to love them and allow the Spirit to use us to create some safe space for him to work and to save them. We don't save them. Our love may be some work of the Spirit to draw them to God, 
but we can't love anybody into the kingdom. It's always God, the spirit who brings them to the kingdom, but he certainly does use us. And love is a great place to start. And the only way we can love other people with what we can call godly love is by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Finally, we come to verses 19 through 21, which should be a gut check and a spirit check for us all. Do we love the light or the darkness? What does the evidence say? Are we children of light? Or are we children of darkness? What does the evidence say? Are we doing our own thing? Or are we doing God's thing? So in addition to the third point, which was Jesus did come to save us human beings, to rescue us from the condemnation that already rests upon us, here's the fourth and final main point of truth. Then we'll look briefly at the text. Verse number four, our responses to God in Christ Jesus, whatever they are. Our responses to God in Christ Jesus, to gladly accept him or to reject him, to freely follow him or to go our own way, to joyfully submit to his word or to, to dismiss and rebel against it. Our responses to God in Christ Jesus will reflect our true standing before him and our trajectory of eternity. Let's look at the text very briefly, and then we're done. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. There's Jesus again. Now he's, he's referred to here as the light that has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we read in the Gospels, and if we, if we took a tally, we would find that probably something less than 500 people in the three years that Jesus had his public ministry actually believed and followed him. Something like thousands flocked around him for sure through those three years to hear his teaching, to see the miracles done, but most of them walked away in unbelief. And here the Holy Spirit gives us the reason because their works were, were evil. They loved the darkness rather than the light. Verse 20, for everyone, now we've moved from whoever to everyone, and it means everyone, to everyone, or, or for everyone, who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our responses to God in Christ Jesus, to gladly accept him or to reject him, to freely follow him or to go our own way, to joyfully submit to his word or to dismiss and rebel against it, will reflect our true standing before him and our trajectory of eternity. Well, we've traveled a good distance through a text this morning that was likely more familiar to us than most. Well, at least one verse of it anyway. But still, I hope there was something fresh in there for us to process over the coming days, mainly that God in Christ Jesus' sacrificial love for us is set in a much larger context of his good, great, and unquenchable love for the whole of his creation, of which we are an integral part. 
You may have noticed that my title for this morning's message is Hearing. Hearing God's love in Christ Jesus for the world. And what I mean by hearing is that before we can rightly know or effectively receive and truly accept God's love for us in Christ Jesus, we must first hear, understand, and embrace the proper context, and that is God's love for the whole world. Not just us, but including us. Not just human beings, but all his creation. Not just overtly religious folk, but the openly adulterous. Not just the beautiful, but even more so the not so beautiful. And not just the self-sufficient, but even more the weak, the lame, and the poor. Or, as our central truth puts it, knowing that God in Christ Jesus loves us begins with seeing his love for us in the context of his infinite and active love for the whole of his creation, of which we are an integral part. Let's pray together. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this lesson that uh, you are teaching us, that you have taught us, that you have caused to be written down here so that we could go back to it over and over and over again. Not only John 3.16, which is profound and uh, a key verse in all your scripture, but the truth of your saving action that you shared first with Nicodemus in that conversation, and he eventually came to Christ, though it was very difficult for him being a Pharisee. He basically was giving up everything that he had worked for his whole life to follow you. And that's your calling upon all of us. And help us, Lord, to, to not only know, but, but to also somehow feel your love for us and, and to put it in this proper context that it, it, you're not nearly as focused on us as individuals as we are. <laughs> and still, you love us the same. And that love is greater than any words could express or any heart could feel. Um, your love is for the whole cosmos. And Jesus came to save it all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, again, it is very good to be with you. And I look forward to being with you in person next Sunday, the Lord willing. And I wanted to share with you just a, uh, just a bit more from 1 John chapter 1, especially as it connects with that text and the message that we have been looking at uh, this morning. Here it is from verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in, 
in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, that atoning sacrifice that we talked about before, that provision of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole cosmos, the whole world. Amen. Lord, thank you for your love. I pray that we will uh, learn and be able to apply um, not only the truth of your love, but also the knowledge of your love, the, 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 the emotional impact of your love on us, the wholeness that your love can bring to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great and glorious week. See you next time.